Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Bennett Miller. <laughs> Could you just tell us a bit about how you got from doing the cruise to, to this? Uh, the the cruise was a documentary, mm -hmm. which uh, I guess was done about seven years ago now, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. After that, I, uh, I I I was looking for a long time for the right thing to do, and I began directing television commercials, which uh, allowed me to wait because. I didn't have to do anything for money, and um, maybe three or four years went by doing that before a childhood friend of mine uh, named Dan Futterman, uh, who I'd known since I was 12, sent me uh, his uh, script for this movie. And we said, okay, let's give it a go. And uh, had he done a, a lot of other scripts before? Or, or? This, is, this was Danny's first yeah. screenplay, mm -hmm. and this is my first narrative feature and this is Phil Hoffman's first uh, foray into producing. Now, you had both known, is it true that you'd both known Philip for a while? Yeah, Danny and I knew each other since we were 12, and, right. and Danny and I knew Phil since we were 16. From what, from, in what context? We did a uh, theater program <laughs> after our junior year in high school. Phil lived upstate New York, Danny and I grew up in Westchester. And uh, it was the New York State Summer School of the Arts mm. that was held in Saratoga. Uh, and it was like a, an acting program. Okay. Now, I noticed the film, there's a, a credit for a United Artists. So I'm just wondering, mm. uh, were they in the first um, company to, to well, back this film? Well, United Artists made this film. Yeah. Uh, it took us about a year. Uh, Phil and I flew around yeah. trying to raise the money for it. And eventually... Uh, the folks at United Artists, who right. originally said no, said yes. Mm -hmm. And what had happened is yeah. that Sony Corporation purchased United Artists. Mm. And um, I think the guys at United Artists said, you know, what do we have to lose? It's, you know, right. Phil and I had come in there with a lot of passion. Yeah. And they all knew that they were not going to have their jobs in about six, eight months. And uh, it was sort of like a Hail Mary pass. Like, <laughs> like we'll just, you know, if, if uh, it turns out okay, they were geniuses. If not, like, right. they're gone. This was Bingham Ray running UA? Bingham or? was already gone. It was Danny Rosette, okay. who I am eternally grateful for saying yes after everybody said no. Okay. And tell us a bit about um, your, your approach to this material. I mean, what's fascinating about what you're working with is that you've got the, the real-life murder, you have the movie in Cold Blood, mm -hmm. the book in Cold Blood, um, the biography, Gerald Clark's biography of Truman Capote. So there's a lot of mm -hmm. different layers going on. I'm just wondering how you sort of threw all that. There's, there's, it, it, it's a lot. Yeah. But for me, the reasons for doing this, the film were simple. I read the script, and I, I kind of sat with it for a little bit, and, uh, and there was a feeling that it created, and there was, a, for me, a reason for doing it, and, and the reason for doing it was uh, specific. It's not a traditional biopic, and it yeah. does not burden itself uh, with the responsibility of, of, of 
covering you know all the bases of, yeah. of a person's life. Right. For me, uh, the great resources that were available for us, you know, in cold blood, the, right. the you know Truman story, Gerald Clark's incredible biography that I would yeah. recommend to everybody, uh, were really just a, a resource to serve a, a smaller purpose. It's just a it's a very classical. Yeah tragedy right it's a classical tragedy and it so happens to be based in in, in reality the tragedy being that it's inev inevitable and what's amazing right. what's interesting about the story of course is that it's it's both about Truman Capote's rise to fame but built into that is his destruction that's right yeah. it's it's inevitable it's somebody whose downfall is is the consequence of his own character yeah so he had everything uh, and and really you know, answered prayers. He got everything he wanted, and, and yet, in, in so doing, sowed yeah. the seeds to his own demise. But the fact that you are not doing the standard biopic, um, in a way, puts more of a burden on you, because mm -hmm. the film is really about uh, the nuances of what's happening to him. For the film to work, you have to understand very finite, very small things. There's two things going on here. One is, there's, this, there's the story. Yeah in the plot of a person going about doing what he needs to do to write his masterpiece. Yeah. But uh, what's happening beneath the surface is, is a very private tragedy. And what's really going on right from the very beginning, uh, there, the, the event is sort of a calling to Truman and uh, nobody knows what's going on with him. It's never made explicit, so you have a very public person uh, with, you know, an explicit action and plot. Uh, so public person with that charisma and the sort of very private uh, and more disturbing reality that's happening beneath. And but so, this all has to be suggested. I mean, yeah. so there's a, a love that he feels for, that grows towards Perry. It's under the surface. It's on, right, yeah. right. He does not share with anybody what yeah. is really going on. Yeah. You know, it's a totally private, internal yeah. experience. Could you talk a bit about then working with Philip uh, Seymour Hoffman? It's such an uncanny performance that it's like breathtaking in a way to see him. Actually, I did an interview with Phil yesterday talking about his process, mm -hmm. which I don't think he likes to talk about that right. much himself. Um, and uh, I still find it interesting uh, how he works. But, um, we, you know, we've known each other for a long time. Yeah. He's a, he's, a, he's a deep thinker. He really uh, knows how to, you know, dig deeper and peel back the layers and, you know, going through the script together and really discussing, like, you know, what's going on and, like, this is what's on the surface and what's the next level and what's the next yeah. level. Uh, he really works hard. You know, I don't think anybody works harder to prepare and all the physical aspect of it, you know, the voice and the physicality. But uh, those are not the things that make him a great actor. It's not his intelligence, and it's not his preparation and his work. It's uh, yeah, all of that stuff. I think prepares him to a level, and he ingests that. He's he's got that preparation. But uh, when he is in the moment, and the and the truth of the moment presents itself, he he really relinquishes uh, everything and uh, all ideas and you know, preconceptions. For us, it was really a process of, of getting to the place where we felt comfortable enough that it could be discovered when the cameras were rolling. In rehearsals, 
preparation began about six months out for him. Uh, rehearsals, you know, began maybe two and a half months out. And two weeks before, it was just it was just full on working it, working it. But we never we never rehearsed anything to the point where it actually happened, yeah. you know. And uh, the the first time it was going to happen, uh, the cameras would be rolling, and we really left room for that sort of, the you know, the kind yeah. of magic that happens. Yeah. Can you talk specifically about the party scenes? I love those scenes because they, oh. they have such a great flavor to them. They capture him being both boisterous at the same time as you can also yeah. sense uh, his loneliness. Yeah, it's hard to contrive yeah. something like that. Yeah. And uh, we, didn't, we did not try to. We, um, we, we really left it to creating you know, the atmosphere and, and the circumstances for it to happen. And he pretty much improvises every word in those scenes. Hmm. Hmm. What was it that you had in mind that sort of gave you the, the, the confidence or sense of what the whole film was going to be like? I mean, were you thinking of other, other well, films? Other films? I like quiet films where things mm -hmm. are going on in, like, in the ether, you know, in films yeah. that, are, that somehow feel conscious, mm -hmm. that uh, I didn't want to tell the story so much as I wanted to observe the story mm -hmm. and, and how it's observed and, and being able to feel the kind of mind that is observing it you know yeah. so you know Kubrick yeah. obviously how every frame in his movies just yeah. you can't understand like what why, yeah. how is it they you feel conscious you know the, the every frame feels conscious um, you know one of the first movies that hmm. kind of got me to thinking you know maybe yeah. I should get into movies yeah. I saw when I was 15 years old called um, Walkabout you know mm -hmm. Nicholas Rogue uh, you know, that kind of thing. Vim Bender's early movies like Kings of the Road and Alice in the Cities, just yeah. in the kind of voyeuristic nature. Yeah. But, you know, the idea was to create something of profound uh, austerity that would really sensitize you to what's yeah. happening on the subtlest level and make a movie that just scrutinizes. Yeah. It's just, just to sort of jump back to you were talking about how hard it was to get the film made with the difficulty. What was mm. difficult about convincing say, UA or other studios to... Well, you walk into a room and uh, you, you tell them, you know, I want to make a, a film about a writer writing his book. Like, box office gold. <laughs> and, um, uh, I, think, I think the appeal of the film is very difficult to communicate. Yeah. Uh, I think Phil and I, and of course Danny Futterman too, the screenwriter... You know, we believed it. Kubrick says, I got that, somebody gave me that Kubrick book, the you know, the, the archives, yeah, yeah. you know. It comes with a CD, yeah. which I would recommend to anybody. <laughs> in that CD, in an interview, he says, you know, if, if, if you're right about something, people tend to know it, you right. know. And uh, for a year, they didn't seem to, like, agree with us. And, and, maybe, right. maybe, <laughs> and maybe we were wrong, but... Um, now, Kubrick had to often wait many years after the film before mm. people came around, but you're seeing... I mean, the response has been pretty amazing to this film. Well, this is a digital era, so it's like <laughs> everything's accelerated. Right, right. Um, okay, in terms of the production design, did you have access to the original crime scene photos, and what did you use to, to get that period detail? Uh, yeah, we had the crime scene photos, and we had... Um, a lot of stuff. The original, the Richard Brooks film was shot in Holcomb and Garden City and used the real lo locations in the courtroom. That's the actual house in the Brooks film. 
uh, that was helpful only a few years after, like six or seven years after the murder that thing was shot. Richard Avedon traveled to Kansas as is portrayed in the film uh, at the invitation of Capote and he photographed not just the killers there but you know all around town, went to the Dewey home, you know the cemetery, the courtroom. A few weeks before he passed away yeah. uh, he invited Phil over uh, for mm. dinner mm. and cooked him you know, linguine with clams, and uh, for three and a half hours shared everything he had, and he gave us wow. all those contact sheets. So we, wow. we've got, you know, hundreds of photographs that we based it on. It was a strong effort to be accurate, you know, to, to be obedient to what was, but uh, the the goal never was to convince anybody of anything. It should be right, but, you know, it's a period piece, and the pitfalls of that kind of thing is uh, you give it too much importance and, and it, it becomes some kind of a barrier between the story and what's really happening. It kind of separates you from it. So the, the, the movie doesn't hit you over the head with a, with, um, with a period or strain itself to sell 1961 or anything like that. Uh, and much more concerned just how it communicates tonally the production design then is that what Perry Smith's journal actually looked like hmm. did you consider anybody else other than Philip Seymour Hoffman no he was uh, he was it Danny Futterman told me uh, if you want to do this movie like I would love you to do this movie and we talked about it for about two weeks before I agreed to do it and then we talked about who Capote would be who would be Capote. Phil was the only name that we ever came up with, and had, had he said no, I probably would have uh... Okay, well. <laughs> Man, two, two different uh, questions. One about the cinematography, mm -hmm. but then do you have anything in mind for Philip's right. Hoffman so it doesn't get anchored? I was very privileged to work with uh, another good friend of mine, Adam Kimmel, uh, who is a great DP, who was somebody who I work with doing commercials, as was the production designer and the costume designer. It's, my, it's basically my commercial crew. Uh, the production designer, by the way, this was his first feature mm. as a production designer. Mm. And, um, uh, and, and as far as Phil goes, uh, and what he might do in the future, he'll do whatever I tell him to do. <laughs> so... <laughs> What did you do as a director in order, order to get that quietness, both well, not just in acting but yeah. in all the other elements of the filmmaking? I think the key to making a movie that is finds power and in, 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 in silence and you know, quiet moments and simplicity and a prose kind of approach too, you know, like the visual language is, is simple. Uh, the key to finding the power there is not... Uh, approaching it from the outside in like I want it to be like Kubrick but it, it's more of uh, what are you really going after in the moment I think the screenplay gave the opportunity you know these scenes were just so rich with with complexity that uh, really the, the goal was you know the invention born of necessity was to direct and sensitize and magnify you know your attention to what was happening. Somebody said to me recently, why did you choose such a sedate style? And I, I don't think it's sedate at all. I think 
when a, you know a movie has a cut every like second and a half or two seconds I, I, that's to me is sedating I just it, I get numb I don't you know yeah. not paying attention to, to me it's the, the, the movie needed it you know the, the, there's so much happening beneath the surface and uh, very naturally when you figure out how do you like take this thing and really give emphasis to it uh, at least my natural style and preferences are to get quiet and you know put the microscope lens up there are you working um, at anything new now, or are you just... I'm done. Me? This is it. <laughs> I'm done. So. so that was your retrospective. Yeah. Right My retrospective. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got... I've, I've begun working on developing something that's going to take some time, and I'm, I'm reading. I'm looking for stuff. So if anybody's got a great idea... What was idea. your initial interest in? Well, I wanted yeah. to make a, a documentary portrait of Bobby Fischer who again was a character like Truman and like yeah. Speed Levitt from The Cruise that yeah. whose life I think represents more than just himself and uh, he, he was 14 years old when he became the United States chess champion and he did so in a time when um, chess was more than a game it was the metaphor for the Cold War and he became an important personality and then uh, kind of pressure in a culture that you know, that would breed yeah. uh, his genius into something so malignant as a cold warrior, you know, as a child. Yeah. Uh, by 16, he was living alone. Eventually, you know, the Russians stopped running and had to sit down and face him in Reykjavik, and, yeah. and he crushed Boris Spassky like a, yeah. like <laughs> a schoolboy. Uh, you know, they draped the American flag around him, and there was a celebration, and he was the most famous person in the world for a few yeah. minutes. You know, what happens when you cultivate your brain like that? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, what happens to a person like that? Uh, he just seemed to be this, this, uh, this remnant of that horrible yeah. militant mentality. You know, yeah. the Secretary of State is calling him up and, you know, right. you, you're important. And the truth is, what became of that yeah. uh, is, is about the ugliest thing you could possibly imagine with his, his insanely rabid anti-Semitism. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he's, anyway, it's, this went on too long, but <laughs> it was a story of a, um, uh, of a Mozart-level genius uh, yeah. not being governed by any kind of wisdom, but, but governed by the kind of things that govern this country. Did your experience making documentary help you uh, have a, a um, sense of objectivity? Yeah, but I think that's my nature, too, and maybe that's why I'm attracted to documentary, and that's why I'm attracted to the kind of movies that do the same thing. But, yeah, people are complex, and uh, the moment you, you label them or yeah. you make it so simple, this or that, it, I think it reduces it to something that negates the relevant truth of things. So. And Capote obviously helped uh, establish that idea. The idea of the nonfiction novel mm -hmm. was, was new. I mean, yeah. now it's all... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Capote looked at these guys in a very unconventional way, yeah. in a very nonconformist way. I mean, these guys killed a family. Yeah. Uh, but he did not look at them with a conventional attitude of uh, hatred or right. fear, yeah. uh, but fascination right. and curiosity and... Uh, a real interest in human nature. Okay. Go ahead. Then, so this will be our last question. The power of storytelling and its uh, ability to uh, 
Well, I mean, two things. One is what that's about. What those scenes are about is is just the ability to witness, in all of its forms, uh, Capote's ability to seduce. He was a seducer, and he could seduce anybody from like a 16-year-old girl in Kansas to like, you know, Alvin Dewey, who's the lead KBI investigator, to you know these guys, to yeah. you know the literati of you know. Yeah. Uh, the late 50s, early 60s, when the movie's set. You know, what I would say about storytelling, seducing, I would say it's as much as who he was that as, as whatever the hell it was that he was saying. <clears throat> My attitude about the film is that as much of a story as it is, it, it's also really just a portrait. <clears throat> when I was answering the question, that how do you go about organizing all that information? And for me, it, you could begin subtracting yeah. when you realize like what you're after. And for me, it was, it's really a portrait. And, a, and, and the purpose of the portrait is to somehow communicate uh, the condition of a person's mind, you know, and the consequences of it. And in these storytelling moments, he, uh, you, you, you see at once like the, the charm and magnetism of a person with charisma. And then the film shows you the sort of disturbing uh, reality that's behind that charisma. Well, if this is your last film, you're going out in style. So, oh, thank um, you. And if not, <laughs> we'll, we'll have you back for thank more. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.